let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer once again, but this time to bring the needs of our lives and our world before him, as we know he's a God who answers his children. Father, um, we uh, lift up to you this morning um, just a, a nation that uh, is hurting um, as we continue to witness shootings, um, even now shootings in religious institutions um, that we've seen over recent weeks, shootings in banks, people who are hurting, people who are scared. Father, we don't claim to have answers, but we pray, we pray, Father, that we here at Gateway, your church with a, a capital C, your, your people, wherever they be in this, in this country, would people be people who promote the saving message of Jesus Christ. And that there's hope in him. There is hope in him that allows us to lay down our arms and there is hope in him to heal from the scars of battle. We know, Father, that ultimately your gospel is the self we need. And we pray that we would make much of it. In the meantime, we pray for our leaders that they would have the wisdom and the insight that they need to tackle these difficult problems. And we pray that they would have the fortitude. We don't claim, again, to have the answers, Father, but we pray that partisan bickering can be set aside for the sake of just ruling. And may we be citizens and residents of this temporary home of ours who promote that kind of peaceableness. Father, we pray for the nation of Sudan, and we pray uh, for the Monastir people there, that you would raise up gospel workers to labor in that field. Father, we pray that that small number of Sudanese uh, Northern Sudanese Christians that exist would be strengthened, encouraged, and built up that you would grow your church there and from there send out movements to these functionally unreached populations in Sudan like the Monastir. We pray, Father, that the, the stranglehold of Islam would be removed from their spiritual necks and they would be set free by the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our hearts as we encounter you in your word today, as we have heard your word prayed, as we have heard your word read, as we have heard your word sung, and now as we hear your word preached, we pray, Father, that we would open our hearts to your word to be transformed by it. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in a uh, series in 1 Samuel, so if you want to turn there, that would be great. Um, And also, just as sort of an aside, uh, chapter 27, by the way, uh, is where we'll be. So turn, click, swipe, tap, you do you. But get to 1 Samuel 27 as an aside. We are doing baptism today. We have two restrooms that are one-seaters, two people that need to change. So, not that I'm encouraging anyone to, you know, get up in the middle of a message or anything, but if you do need to use the restroom, you could do it before Richard and I need to change and things. That would be great. Um, We're looking at 1 Samuel 27 and then into the first two verses of chapter 28. So let me read that and then we'll, we'll dig in. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than, I, than, not, than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath. When it was told, uh, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Ahish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. And these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Yeramelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. We've made mistakes. Uh, I've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. Um, What do you do? What do you do if the mistakes you've made, the failings you've made, have put you in a precarious situation? Our passage this morning begins with a shocking 
first two verses. And we have to really dig in there. Let me read them again. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Now, why is that shocking? Well, let, let's count the ways. If, if you've been with us through this uh, uh, series, if you've been reading along with us, then you might already know the answer because you may have been shocked to read it yourself. But if you've not been with us, let me fill you in a little bit. David is the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. He was one of the most important warriors, military advisors, and servants of King Saul of Israel. But because of jealousy and a fragile ego, Saul turned on David and repeatedly tried to kill him. Eventually, David flees into the southern desert regions to hide from Saul, but Saul repeatedly dispatched significant military resources to hunt down this single man, David, even when it was apparently a security risk to his own people. Twice, David has actually been close enough to kill Saul, but David refused to take advantage of those opportunities because honoring God was more important to him than securing political power or settling a score. So that's a, a good synopsis of where we're at. And based on that, you might think it's reasonable that David would be fed up or even scared by these circumstances and thought it was a great idea to get out of the area. So why am I saying it's shocking? Well, to begin with, consider where David is going. He's going to Gath, one of the primary cities of the Philistines. The Philistines were the single greatest threat to the existence of Israel during this time. They were a coastal people that had invaded many years before from the west and become a thorn in the side of many ancient Near Eastern nations, for instance, even Egypt. Their strength was centered in five city-states, each with a king, and Gath was probably the best known of those five cities. So David's plan was to run directly into the arms of his own people's most feared enemy. But it's more shocking than that, because Gath was the home of Philistine, the Philistines' most notorious warrior, Goliath. That story you probably know even if you haven't been here. That was the battle that launched David to national fame. As a young man, he witnessed his own country's soldiers being terrorized on the front lines by this enormous man named Goliath who insulted not just the people but their God. But unimpressed by Goliath's size and strength, David dared to fight Goliath in a one-on-one duel, successfully struck him with a rock from a sling before cutting his head off with Goliath's own sword. So David wasn't just going to Philistia, the, the land of the Philistines. He was going to the hometown of a legend, a legend that he himself had killed. It's more shocking than that. This is the second time David has gone to the land of the Philistines. 
The first time David went to Gath was after Saul caused him to flee for his life from the capital. So when David was still serving Saul, the, the time when David felt like, that's it, I have to leave, I have to get out, he fled to the region of the Philistines. And at that time, at least made a, a little bit of sense. David had nowhere to go. He had nowhere to hide. He was scared. He was weak. He was exposed. But even then, when we looked at that passage, we, we noted a, a pattern in that passage that it seemed like God was calling him back to the land of Israel. He was calling him back to the territory where, where the other Israelites lived and where he could serve God. In fact, it seemed like almost all of David's running from Saul was counter to what God wanted from him. Despite the risks, God wanted David in Israel territory with God's people, serving God's people. That David thought he needed to be afraid when God was on his side seemed to be a lack of faith. But now David has amassed his own army of 600 men. He has successfully led military campaigns with this rogue militia. Twice he's had the opportunity to kill King Saul and not taken it. And each time he didn't take that opportunity, it was an opportunity for David to be reminded that one day God would make him king in Saul's place. That God was most definitely on his side if he remained faithful. And in the midst of overwhelming odds, no evil could fall on David except what God himself allowed. In fact, it's just chapter 26. You just go up a couple sentences where Saul himself confesses to David that he knows that God will make David king and cause David to prosper. That just happened. So after all of that, why does David go to Gath? And the only thing we have to go on is David's own words. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Consider each of those two statements for a second. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That's fatalism, isn't it? It's conviction that if things remain as they are, he will be murdered by Saul. No doubts, no exceptions. It's a fixed point of reference in David's mind and heart at that moment. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. That's sort of a Hebrew way of saying there's no other option than to go to the land of the Philistines. That's some hopelessness and some really black and white thinking, isn't it? It may sound surprising to us if, if we want the Bible to read like a movie script where every character's motives make sense. But that's not real life, is it? Real life isn't a movie script. People don't always have the right clever thing to say at the right time. David should have every reason to be confident that God will protect him and save him from Saul. But something has changed in his heart that has made him despair. And that's real, isn't it? 
we'd love for our hearts and for our minds to be single-tracked, wouldn't we? We'd love to say we never waver, we never fick, we're never fickle, but, but the reality is, is that sometimes when we should be strong, we are irrationally weak. And sometimes when we are weak, we act irrationally like we're strong. David's faith faltered. His conviction wavered. There may have been strategic reasons to go to Gath. There may have been some well-thought-out reasons to go to Gath. But David's reasons to go to Gath were based on fear and desperation. For the faithful, fear only has one proper direction, toward God. That's why Jesus taught his followers, taught us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are, more value, you are of more value than many sparrows. Almost sounds like Jesus could have been speaking of Saul there, doesn't it? Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The Apostle Peter echoed this thought when he encouraged Christians who might face persecution for following Jesus Christ. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear then, nor be troubled. That's the position David's in. He is literally suffering for righteousness' sake. He wasn't perfect, but because he honored God and he followed him, God was blessing him. And those blessings stirred up jealousy and hatred in King Saul. But at the top of chapter 27, despite everything he'd seen, despite everything David had heard, despite all the times God had protected him, David feared a man more than he feared God. He trusted more in Saul's ability to destroy him than God's ability to save him. And so now, David is in the land of the Philistines. He's in the city of Gath. He's under a foreign king who did not worship the Lord, did not worship Yahweh, who was continually hostile to David's own people. He's a long way from home. This passage of Scripture, then, is a text for all those who have sinned, all those who have failed to trust God, and who are surrounded by the consequences of their mistakes and the reminders of their failures. It's a passage for those of us who find themselves feeling a long way from home. And we can look at the hope that I think this passage offers through two cities, the two cities that are mentioned in the text. Let's look at each of them. First, of course, there's Gath, and, and David comes to Gath in sinful fear and desperation. He's not trusting God for his salvation. But that's only where the story begins. 
He makes a home for himself and his entire army of 600 men, plus whatever families they had at this point. So this is not a temporary pass-through. This is a settling down. David makes a home in Gath. David's plan in coming to Gath was to get Saul to stop pursuing him, and it worked. It's possible that David's plan was wise. It's possible David's plan was even advisable. I don't know. But we know that it was brought about by a sinful motivation. And it's a reminder that what works is not always what's right. Those are different things. This, what we said, is very different from the first time David went to Gath. That time, he had only very recently left the Israelite capital, Gebeah, where he had been serving King Saul. He was known for being one of Israel's most feared warriors. And when he went to Gath that first time, David was a potential threat to the Philistines. And since he was all alone... And in a defenseless position, David pretended to be mentally ill so that the Philistines would see him as harmless, which both worked and backfired for him. It worked in that they didn't fear him. It failed because the king was frustrated with the idea of adding more destitute people to care for in his city, and David was effectively kicked out. This time, David comes in strength but not as the loyal soldier of Israel's King Saul. He goes to Gath as sort of persona non grata in Israel, as King Saul's nemesis and primary target, as public enemy number one. This time, the king of Gath probably saw David as the enemy of his enemy and as a refugee. He might not have fully trusted him, but... Even the United States once teamed up with the Soviet Union to fight Nazi Germany. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. For the Israelites, this must have been a very good time. Well, the Israelites in David's company. David and his men and and their wives and their children now, it's been a while, have been living out of caves and forests and, and the desert, and they finally have a chance to rest So we have this group that could have easily been a few thousand people by this time. It's probably quite a burden on the city of Gath. Large cities were not like large cities in modern times. Scholars have estimated that maybe at its peak, Gath might have been five to 10,000 people. That would have been a very sizable city. But adding two or 3,000 Israelites to that would have been a huge population surge. So... In verse 5, when David speaks to Akish, and he suggests, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there for. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? He may have been, he may have been seeking a way to alleviate the burden that this mass of people presented in a way that helped Akish save face. Uh, by not having to take away hospitality from David and the Israelites and, and kick them out again. But Akish agrees. He gives David the town of Ziklag. And we read, Therefore Ziklag belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. 
Now, we aren't positive the exact uh, location of Ziklag, but we do know a few things here. Several centuries before David ever lived, God brought the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, and brought them to the land of Canaan. Not only was it God's rescue plan, but it was also God's judgment plan. The people of the land of Canaan had become so thoroughly wicked that God's patience had run out with them, and he commanded the Israelites to be effectively his instrument of judgment. They were to uh, conquer the land and put an end to the idolatry and the evil in the land and show the world the glories of God. It's a story you can read about, the, the end of Deuteronomy at the beginning of uh, or the whole book of Joshua, the, the first part of the book of Judges. But, but the Israelites failed. The Israelites failed to finish this job of conquest, and, and instead they engaged in the same wicked practices as the residents of Canaan who lived there before. And they wound up rejecting the Lord as God, and they engaged in all sorts of disturbing ethical practices. And the, the book of 1 Samuel picks up in the aftermath of all of that failure and begins with a picture of an Israel desperately in need of another rescue. Not a rescue from the slavery in Egypt, but a rescue from the slavery to sin. Now, Ziklag was a city. We don't, again, we don't know its exact coordinates. We have some ideas. But we know that it was part of the territory the Israelites were supposed to conquer on the border probably between the land that God said he would give for the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, and the tribe of Simeon. And so something strange just happened here. Through David, Israel has been given territory without even so much as a battle. Akish probably doesn't see it that way, he thinks David is an ally, a thorn in the side of King Saul, and having a loyal veteran soldier with an army on the frontier of his territory makes his rule a lot more secure. But don't mistake the significance of this. David, an Israelite, had captured a city in the land God had promised. Which then moves us to Ziklag. And we might ask ourselves, what, what is David doing here? What is his endgame? Is he really Akish's servant as he identifies himself? And, and the answer to that question uh, is found in the city of Ziklag. Because David uses Ziklag as a base of operations to launch raids across the region against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now, the Geshurites and the Amalekites were people specifically mentioned by God as under judgment, people the Israelites were supposed to remove from the land because of their wickedness. Uh, the Gerzites were probably a related group. We don't really have much information biblically or archaeologically about them. But these are enemies of Israel. More importantly, they had made themselves by their sin enemies of God. And suddenly from Ziklag, David has resumed God's mission for the Israelites to conquer the land and judge the nations. 
The, the passage describes absolute destruction of these cities, and David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the ox, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Akish. That sounds awful. Um, and, and it was awful. It was full of awe. It comes up several times in the Old Testament, and if you've been here, you've heard me talk about it several times when we, we went through uh, Joshua uh, earlier in the book of 1 Samuel when we came to this. Um, I'll say a few notes, um, but I'm not going to go into too much detail for the sake of those who've heard it multiple times. Um, but a couple of things to keep in mind. There is some debate about whether this language should be taken literally or just as a figure of speech, meaning sort of overwhelmingly defeated. And, that, and that's important to keep in mind. At the same time, though, part of David's efforts here were to keep the people from talking. And, and that would certainly suggest there were no survivors at all. There are probably ways to square that circle, but they'd all be pretty speculative and... We don't need to speculate. What the faithful can rest in is this, that the Israelites never had permission to act indiscriminately. They only had permission from God to engage in battles over a specific area because God had already judged the people. And God's judgment is just. God never gives anyone injustice, only justice. And his justice is more than enough. Jesus was once informed about some terrible tragedies that had happened. There was a group of Jews. He was told that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the guy who would one day oversee Jesus' own trial, Pontius Pilate had, had killed this group of Jews and, and mixed their blood with the blood of sacrifices. How perverse and wicked is that? And the people around Jesus wondered, what great evil did these people do to deserve such a horrible fate? And Jesus pushed back on that premise. It wasn't that they didn't deserve to die. They did. But instead, Jesus put it this way. He said, do you think that these Galileans, these, the Jews that it happened to were from Galilee, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It wasn't that they were worse sinners. That was the premise of the question. Jesus said they, they were ordinary sinners, like you. And if you don't repent, eventually God's patience will run out with you also. The Bible paints God as sovereign over the affairs of men. And we sang this morning of his incredible sovereignty in, in Lord of Hosts, which takes its ideas from Psalm 46 um, which reads in part, Come behold the works of God, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. 
Sometimes we get pictures of the specific outworking of God bringing desolations or bringing wars to an end. But more typically, we don't know the mysterious and omnipotent ways of God. But we know that we can trust that His ways are just and they are good. To that end, David is successful in these raids. But he's under an obligation to Achish in Gath. So after plundering these towns and villages, David would take a tribute back to the king. And this king was often curious about David's exploits. He's obviously very successful, and David would lie. Instead of telling the king that he had raided the Geshurites or the Girzites or the Amalekites, he would tell King Achish that he had raided Israelite settlements. And since there was no one to report otherwise, and David was attacking towns quite a distance from Gath, Achish had no reason to know any better. He assumed that the Israelites must really hate David now. And that meant that he could trust David even more. Was it wrong for David to lie? The fundamental principle of God's law is that people should be truth-tellers. The Ten Commandments say you shall not bear false witness. Each of those laws in the Ten Commandments gets qualified and gets specified in terms of how you're supposed to apply it. And it's clear that there are higher order laws, like preserving innocent life, that, that take precedence. The law also seems to recognize that in times of war and espionage, some level of deception may be permissible. These are hard questions. But since Israel was in a constant state of conflict with the Philistines, and since the lives of David, his army, and their families were at stake, I'm of the opinion that this was an acceptable lie. But I'm willing to be wrong on that, though. But, but, but Scripture is pretty clear that the cases where lying may be acceptable are extremely rare and generally limited to times of literal mortal danger where death is a possibility. Now, the upshot of all of this is this. Not only had David acquired a city for Israel, he was effectively defeating Israel's enemies and reclaiming the land for God's people. So let's pull these two cities together because they, they point us to an improbable and surprising bit of very good news. David got to Gath out of sinful fear and desperation. It was a momentary lapse of faith in a life generally marked by profound faithfulness. David had a couple lapses of faith in his life. He'll have a couple more before it's over. He was not perfect. There's this beautiful promise that's shared by the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy, in, in his second letter to Timothy, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, 
for he cannot deny himself. And so even in David's moment of faithlessness, God remained faithful. David's choice to not trust God came with consequences. He was now an expat. He's living in a land that was not his home. He's living among a people who spoke a strange language that had customs and ethics that he could not stomach. The Philistines worshipped gods like Dagon and Baal. The Philistines had routinely attacked and oppressed David's countrymen, even his own family, and he was now stuck there for at least 16 months, it says. But that choice to not trust God did not have to be David's fate. Every choice we make, even when we choose foolishly or we choose sinfully, is a point in time. It defines what we did. It doesn't have to define what we do. David could have chosen to give up, yeah? Consider his situation. The king of Israel, Saul. The king that he had served so faithfully for years was relentlessly pursuing him to kill him. Saul had stolen his wife from him. Saul had caused him to live as an outlaw, homeless among his own people. And more than once, David's own countrymen had turned on him and told Saul where to find him to kill him. These were supposed to be God's people, the people of faith. Would it have been shocking if someone in David's position had said, I'm done with it, I'm through, I'm through with this religion, I'm through with this God named Yahweh and these crazy people who claim to worship him? Would we be shocked if someone in his position decided he didn't want to be an Israelite anymore? Maybe things are just better in Philistia. Maybe he should just count himself among the Philistines and be done with it. And he had a home, and he had a city, and he had prosperity. Maybe life was better away from God. Choices lead to choices. And David's choice to run gave him a new choice. Would he throw in with the Philistines and abandon God. No. David may have been living among the Philistines, but he refused to become a Philistine. In fact, he committed himself to doing good by Israel, doing good to his people, even from his place of exile, even far away from home, God was with him. Many years later, many years later, the apostle Peter wrote to Christians who felt like they were living in a world that was not their home. And he wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. He means unbelievers. Keep your 
conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. David kept his faith. He kept his hope that a better country awaited him, that God could redeem even these circumstances. It might have seemed enticing to give up on God and, and, and take some comfort in what pleasures he could find during his time in Philistia, but he held on to the promise of something greater, something better that waited for him. The story of the faithful in the Bible is one of trial and suffering. Did you know that? Maybe you were given the impression somewhere along the way that following God was the path to a great life and prosperity and comfort. Middle class, suburbia, just the right number of kids, just the right number of cards, cars, and a fantastic retirement. But that's, that's not God's message. God's message is that the, the reward is God himself. The reward is Jesus Christ. If you've suffered, if you've been through hard times, you're in good company. And if in the midst of those trials you've made some foolish choices, maybe even some sinful choices, that doesn't mean things are over. That doesn't mean God cannot use you that your life doesn't have meaning or value. The author of the book of Hebrews writes about the many men and women of faith who often lived long, hard lives without seeing the fruit of what they hoped for. And he writes this, he said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land for which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I mentioned earlier a, a teaching of Jesus that the fundamental question isn't, what was so bad about these people that they deserve to die such a horrible death? The fundamental question is, what are you going to do about the fact that you are just as bad and just as deserving of death? God is in the business of redeeming broken sinners. What those of old did not see clearly, but has been made plain to us, is that the great comfort of the saints is this, that a king named Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, 
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ died to take away sin. And those who by faith cling to him, who, like Jesus said, repent, will find a better city and a better country. He redeems those who are weak. He strengthens them. And he does not abandon them in their momentary faithlessness. Instead, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Weak Christian, your story is not over so long as you are breathing. God's promises are still true. They are still good. Be patient. Trust that God can use you even now and that he is preparing a weight of glory that we cannot possibly fathom. Weak sinner, your story is not over. God's just judgment, which hangs over you, does not need to be the end of your story. Jesus stands ready to forgive, to take all of the judgment you deserve to face on himself and set you free. Now, fellow Christians, if that's who you are, I want to offer you a caution. Christ can use you. God is not done with you because of your lapse of faith. But David's situation was precarious. Eventually, the king of Gath is going to have to learn the truth of David's battles and exploits. Eventually, he's going to find out which towns are emptied and missing. David could not pretend to be an ally forever. Then what would happen? See, even though God brought about good from David's sin, that doesn't mean the consequences were over. Sin has a tendency to lead us into darker and darker places where the choices are more and more difficult, doesn't it? We still have choices, but it gets harder. And I, I suspect you all know that way too well, that when you give in to sin, whether it's anger or whether it's lust or whether it's indulgence in food or drink or whatever it is, then the next time is a little bit easier to give in. Do it twice, then it's easier the third time. And our bad choices lead us to places where we are offered more opportunities to make bad choices, often with fewer means of escape. And that happened to David at the end of our passage. 
Thinking that he had an ally, the king of Gath came to David with a new demand. And we see this at the, the top of chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Essentially, Achish is saying, we're going to war against Israel. You belong to Philistia now. You are a Philistine now. You are under my authority. And you are going to war against Israel. And what could David say? He couldn't really refuse without creating a war right there in the court of Achish. Would David do it? Would David really go to war against his own people to save his life? It's a question that's left for another day. It's a, it's a cliffhanger that doesn't get resolved until chapter 29. But in that is, is a warning for us, a caution for us, that though God is faithful to us in the midst of our failings, that does not mean that things will be easy and that things will go wonderfully after we return to him. It doesn't mean that the consequences of our mistakes, though they might be in the past, just get swept away. The past often has tentacles into the present, doesn't it? And the path out of the dark woods that sin takes us into is often full of traps and snares. But Jesus is faithful. The promise of God's word is this. These were the words of the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in Corinth who felt ensnared by sin. That with temptation, God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There was still a way out for David. And there is a way out for you. Let's pray. Father God, um, give us the courage and the confidence to know that if we are in Christ, you are not done with us and that you are faithful to us to the end, that you do not return faithlessness with faithlessness. But for those who refuse to deny you, even if our faith falters for a season, you will strengthen us again and that you can use us for your good and glorious purposes and to bless your people. And Father, may those who do not know you, who have not placed their faith in Christ and his sacrifice and turned from their sins, may they know
that their mistakes, their failings, no matter how great they seem, those things may be what separated them from you. But they are not a barrier that you are unable to cross. But show them how you crossed it. And the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son, King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing praises to that God. Baptism is the initiation rite of, of the Christian faith, and uh, a, a, a prerequisite is how we join the church, how we join Christ's body. We are baptized into the body of Christ. Uh, and so we are pleased to be able to uh, be a part of that journey with him uh, this morning. And uh, again, his, his 
reception into the membership of the church was conditional upon his baptism. So he will also be joining Gateway uh, in, in the waters of, of baptism. Um, so, so this is a very uh, exciting opportunity for us. Um, Are you now trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of God's promises to you, even in confession? Yes. And do you intend, with God's help, to obey Jesus' teachings and follow him as your Lord all of your days? Yes. Upon your profession of faith, uh, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Let's go on to Chapter Anthony. Please support us a little bit. Jesus saves. Let's continue singing praises to the God of our salvation. <laughs> 